Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be speaking to you again. Um, please tell me if you can hear me at the back. Is it good? Okay, right. Well, the, um, also my thanks to the organizers of the conference and for inviting me to this. As uh, it was pointed out, it's my first um, visit and uh, it seems fantastic. I really enjoyed the papers today that uh, ranged from exploring the most beautiful and most creative poetic aspects of these works as well as their complexities and um, the work in front of us, really. My talk today is about silence. Uh, the title of it is How Sweetly with a Kiss is a Speech Interrupted, uh, the, dynamism, the Dynamism of Silence in Rumi's Poetry. Um, years ago, um, when I was in, in graduate school in London, um, a friend whose knowledge of Persian and love for mystical poetry were equally impeccable said to me, um, if mystics think so highly of silence, why do they speak so much? <laughs> it took me a while to realize that others had thought of that question before and even a while longer to notice how in such questions the concept of silence was simplified and reduced to an absence of speech. What I liked least about the inquiry was the implied duplicity attributed to the mystics, if one can imagine such a homogeneous group in the first place and then assume that they all felt the same about silence. Nonetheless, um, the thought built itself, built itself a niche in the space of my personal encounters with Rumi's poetry, surfacing from time to time. When the opportunity presented itself to write a monograph on Rumi's lyrics, I knew that there will be a chapter discussing his silence even before I had a complete plan for the, for the book. Now, mystics, philosophers, and ethicists um, have frequently allowed space for silence in their discourse, but for the scholars of literature, this took a while. Um, as far as the art of rhetoric was concerned, silence had no way to compete with the spoken word. In 1966, in his fine essay on rhetoric and rhythm, Morris Kroll put it this way, there is only one rhetoric, the art of the beauty of the spoken word. Others, um, and there are many of them, I'm quoting Christina Lockett here, who observed, defined in relation to speech, silence could only be excluded as its antithesis or appropriated as its corollary. Even Wittgenstein's now famous conclusion what, can't, what we can't speak, or what we cannot speak, sorry, what we cannot speak about, we must pass in silence, did not improve the status of silence very much. <laughs> in short, silence found its literary significance as a sidekick to speech. Drama is probably among the first genres that turned the critic's attention uh, to the significance of silence. Um, Beckett, for example, um, came to be known 
as a skillful manipulator of pauses in his plays. And um, um, indeed, he is often viewed as the main influence on Harold Pinter, who developed his own reputation as a master utilizer of silence in his plays. Um, in less than a decade after the statement I quoted from Kroll, um, Henry Moore praised a book on Harold Pinter for carrying the subtitle, The Poetics of Silence. These days, Moore wrote in the preface of the book, we have various studies on the language of silence, the literature of silence, the theater of silence. Despite the book's great praise for um, Pinter's mastery of silence, Pinter himself displayed a rebellious denial when questioned about the util utilization of silence. He said, it is a little fatiguing when people talk about my damn pauses. It becomes metaphysical. Actually, I write the pause because people are going to stop talking at that moment. <laughs> um, Hollis nonetheless called Harold Pinter's theater a form of acted poetry that moves the spirit through its deepening shades of silence. Um, while studying silence in Rumi's lyrics, um, my research uh, for an answer to the question, why did Rumi spend so much time speaking about silence, or rather writing about not writing, took the back seat to the experience of the wonder that I enjoyed at the panorama of the lively and colorful silences in his poetry. So by this time, I was really a little bit distanced from trying to just defend why they spoke, um, but rather um, um, at all of this range of silence that existed. One of the most enjoyable personal discoveries of that study was that silence in the poetry of Rumi is not the absence of speech, but rather a fine literary gesture um, pointing us in the direction of wordless experiences and daring us, basically, to approach the unimaginable. In the, in, in the Divan, the collection of his uh, lyric poetry, um, I collected many examples of what I would call Rumi's fresh and engaging encounters with silence. Some instances were pure play, which he was very interested in. For instance, in his love for fabricating a suspenseful ambiance, which is always a part of the Ghazals, um, he uses the theme of silence also. Tell the walls, the walls may hear, speak in lower voice. Oh, my intelligence, climb up the roof to guard. Oh, my heart, keep the doors closed. The tight-fisted sea in his willful silence says, I know nothing. I haven't seen any pearls. I was amused, but also astounded by the complexity of his logic for speaking without words. Because words can all be found in other books. These are quotes. And more importantly, because the meaning hides itself if you talk too much. And of course, the charming 
ecstatic self-contradictions with which he described his own need for silence. One moment this was that silence was motivated by the meager size of the water skin of his words for how much could a water skin carry from the ocean. And another moment he would keep silent because um, he was fearful that it would cause a mutiny. It, it, for if he broke his silence, his words would tear thousands of veils every instant. So it was a very uh, playful and ecstatic self-contradiction, which basically said, um, you have to shift your vantage point. You can't always stand in the same place and look at this. Um, my thematic exploration of uh, silence in the divan led to a rainbow of new images and ideas, which I will not repeat here. Neither do we have time, nor is it really necessary to re revisit all of that. But I must refer in passing to two central themes that emerged, uh, one um, descriptive and analytical, and the other one designed to engage the reader at the creative, uh, creative level of meaning generation. I will call the former Rumi's investigative and the latter his functional use of silence. In his investigative thematization of silence, Rumi used the uncharted territory um, of silence to open room for the fresh ways in which poetry could be imagined. Fun, magic, trickery, rendering the unseen visible um, through the process of make-believe, and much more. Um, quote, speaking has become so fine, so precise, he would say in one ghazal, there is not even room for the breath in the mouth. I shall now resort to sophistry, since here tricks are justified. In these investigative attempts, silence can be... Um, many things, but it is not despair in the face of inexpressibility, which in some other cases are with the, with the range of mystics. Um, rather, it is a space in which the fineness of speech can strive towards its full potential. This indescribable fineness and precision engages the unstated meaning what is not yet formulated, even at the level of conception. In this respect, silence means possibility, expression, emergence, and the act of speaking becomes a perpetual becoming because you come out of that silence, that creative silence, again and again and again, and never the same way. The latter theme, which I adopt Rumi's functional use of silence, usually appears as a sudden ending in the final um, verse of Ghazal, a place which is certain to catch the attention of the, of the reader. Um, I stop here, Rumi says in one example, much as a guest might say, in time, it is time for me to leave. Short speech is more pleasant, or be quiet, he warns himself in another concluding verse, for you said much and no one listened. 
These abruptly imposed silences um, begin to shapeshift as you look at more and more and more examples of them. I give you one example, one beautiful example, is um, that these ending places turn into beginnings. Beginnings left completely to the imagination of the reader by a beautiful image that is presented to you at that point. O oh, king of Tabriz, O oh, my king Shamsadin, I have closed my mouth. You come. It is your turn to speak. Now, indeed, Shams here is none other than the reader, whose, ta whose task is to imagine the way the master would finish the unfinished if he were indeed present. Sometimes these ending beginnings, whose main function is to commission the reader to compose the poetry beyond the page, um, take the place of an alluring image. In one fascinating example, the reader is warned, enough of boasting, abandon this, say your prayers instead, and then is left with the image that unfolds, Jesus ascended to the fourth heaven on the wings of prayer. Well, needless to say, the prophetic ascension of Jesus on the wings of prayer is no place to abandon the poem or end the thought. It is the beginning of reader's journey beyond the page, or ascension. Well, um, my monograph was finished. Tenure got out of the way. Even the urge to convince the British friend that Rumi's thousands of verses in praise of silence are not hypocritical subsided. But one thing remained, the allure of silence itself, and its astonishing range of variations. Along the way, perhaps even when I was not conscious, consciously exploring Rumi's use of silence, I kept coming upon new and exciting ways to conceptualize silence in his poetry and in those of other poets. Here I would like to highlight one particular instance in which silence was manifestly, perhaps even overwhelmingly present and yet extremely hard to define. Rather like the murmuring of the television in the background in the households which, in which that is uh, kept on habitually, the silence in question lurked in the background of our daily lives. As you may have guessed from my tone, this wasn't a positive silence. This wasn't an inviting silence. There was nothing playful or alluring or productive about this silence. Rather, it was a heavy and paralyzing silence. One that could lead, and I would like to put my emphasis on this sentence, one is the kind of silence that could lead to the fatal loss of the inner voice. It was a silence that Rumi did not celebrate, but rather worked hard to banish. So let me explain. The best place, actually, to trace this silence is Rumi's opus magnum, the Mass Navi, the most influential compendium of the speculative mysticism in Persian language. Those familiar with the Mass Navi know that the colorful and tightly interconnected units that form the large narrative structure in 
this composition are interrupted frequently with lively lyrical moments. Like a healthy beating pulse um, indicating the flow of blood in the body, these vibrant momentary expressions signal a strong undercurrent of energy in this body of 27,000 rhyming couplets. Some of these pulsating moments are reminiscences about Rumi's departed master Shams. Many thematize the seemingly irresolvable um, pre human predicament. Uh, others celebrate love. I wish we had hours to just read those. But the stories in the Masnavi are keys to resolving some of the most complicated philosophical and theological issues of Rumi's time, perhaps of all time. That these stories are interrupted fully to make room for these brief lyrical outbursts is itself an effective narrative strategy. Um, the least it does is that it makes them stand out, makes the stories stand out, and capture the attention of the reader as a solitary gem set on an otherwise unadorned ring can really get the attention of the, of the viewer. Um, at the same time, um, these lyrical moments are linguistic enactments of what he has tried to explain. He has tried to explain things uh, in a speculative or philosophical, uh, theological manner. Then comes this moment in which he enacts it linguistically. I talk and talk to describe and demystify love. Then I come to love. What a poor job I've done. So he's very aware of the need to creating these real encounters. In short, while Rumi wishes to maintain the speculative and analytical nature of the stories in the Masnavi, obviously, he is aware that no amount of speculation and argument will compare to one encounter with love. These lyrical intervals are poetic attempts to bring about the encounter, the opportunity to touch, feel, and taste love, to move from the speculative to the experiential. To me, all good poetry, I think to all of us, all good poetry has always felt to be much more than a mere text on the page. It very often is in the nature of an encounter. In Rumi's case, I found the encounter to be multi-layered. It's an encounter with the reader, it's an encounter um, with the world around, but above all, it's an encounter with the self. Um, this, and by self, I really mean this relentless emergence, this perpetual possibility. What was striking about these lyrical moments to me was a, that a large number of them were conversations with God. Okay, what would you... Uh, publicize your conversations with God. God, the king, who according to Rumi, keeps you puzzled until you come to your senses and seek the astrolabe of his law. I will call these conversations um, with God moments of monajat. And the word monajat is an Arabic term. It has a wide range of 
meanings. It has had a long journey into the Persian language, and therefore its semantic field has really acquired many, many more um, meanings in there or, or concepts in there. In particular, I, I translate it here, or I understand it as intimate conversations. Okay, so these were intimate conversations with God. In, uh, and uh, in these, um, and there were a large number of them, and in these, um, he would sometimes praise God, but it would be in a completely different uh, kind of wording and description. A chodaye raz dalne khoshsohan, a God knower of the secrets and gracious of speech. And or the verse, one of the verses I read the other day, um, O God, with whose grace our every need is fulfilled, when you are remembered, no other thoughts should enter. So he begins to address God in, in a completely varied, uh, at times highly innovational, at other times um, standard and traditional manner. But and, and these conversations are not about just please forgive me and please help me get my wish, although all of those are present in some places. So it really, the, it's, it's not devoid of those moments. But he explains to us what this conversation is needed for himself. John Hameruz as lagat kub khyal vazyanu sudo as khof zawal ni safa mimanadash ni lutfufar na besuya asman rah safar kicked and punched all day by the onrush of thoughts, by loss and gain and the fear that we will die, no purity is left in the soul, no grace, no glory, no, nor would it find its way to travel to the sky. So in this way, according to Rumi, our existence with this constant noise in the background of life, our existence is shielded and our inner self silenced with the noise of all that surrounds us, the onrush of thoughts, the images, the fears, the hopes. I really don't need to repeat those. He said it very beautifully. These conversations with God, these monajat, were lyrical tools he used to cut through these layers of silence and reactivate our human, albeit dormant, privilege speaking with God's voice. Now, this is, I have elsewhere developed this, and so I'm not going to go into all that detail, but something at the core of it is what he calls Danish. so a drop of knowledge, right? Qatreyadanish he gave us a drop of knowledge in the times past. Please connect it with the seas that belong to you. Within my soul, there is a drop of knowledge. Free it from fancy and the trap of my earthly life. Now, 
In other words, despite all the noise that silences us, there is that drop of knowledge. There is that hope that could get connected with um, God, who now we know why he describes as gracious of speech, because speech and expression becomes very central in, in, this, con in, in this context. Elsewhere, he, in fact, uh, says it very clearly, um, teach us exact words, O oh friend. And friend, of course, is friend, beloved, God, you know, all of that. Teach us exact words, O oh friend, words that move you, move us to compassion. So Rumi plans to help us recover this inner speech. He does it very beautifully, poetically, again, I'm not going to uh, have the time to go into the details of that, but basically he creates around us. He tells us how the spring, the, the, the autumn dies and comes back to life in spring, and then he moves that spring inside. You can revive, you can come back to life in the same way that what you're watching out there dies and comes back to, la to life, and he has help. You know, he tells us all the time, you hold on to my voice, but he also says, you know, there are those there are those fish from the depths of the sea of glory that, you know, you can hold on to. Or sometimes, Rasulan Zamir Razgu, your own self, mystery telling messengers of the mind that you own yourself. So, with the help of these uh, helpers and messengers, they get us, and they, whose job is listening, listening to see if we begin to speak, if we begin to recover our godly voice, and they're standing at the threshold, always at the threshold. And why a threshold? Because what takes place beyond the threshold is not drilling anymore. It's, converse, it's, it's, it's a real conversation. It's happening with um, whatever is <laughs> beyond the threshold. It's corrected instantly. Through direct exposure to the alchemy of the divine, there is no need for Rumi to correct anybody, anyone at, at that point beyond the threshold anymore. And in the intimacy of the moment, in fact, it is not clear who's speaking, God or us, or is there any separation uh, there? And um, part of a piece that I read last night was about that, that prayer comes from you, and as does acceptance, safety is granted by you um, the same. Um, is true of fear. So beyond the threshold, you know, and even at this point, but beyond the threshold, um, it, there is a, a different um, story. Um, now, uh, I have to say that, you know, we're not really completely finished. Um, so far, we have explored Rumi's pedagogy of... Um, reawakening in the reader um, the lost godly speech and to empower him to walk past the threshold of intimacy with the divine. Um, and where I have elaborated on this, I go through, you know, in a kind of tongue-in-cheek, through the speech patterns, through the grammar, through the rules of conduct and speak, speech and all that, just because it's a model that helps us think more uh, in, in a different way, in a certain uh, pattern about it. 
but one might ask um, if the cacophony of this daily uh, strife, this anger, jealousy, guilt, sadness, and so on, is so loud, um, that how can one hear the joyful noises of life and love and do um, what Rumi wants us to do, which is to recover the speech? How to, how to cut through the, really these layers of silence? And the answer, as you may guess, is love. And it might at first sound like a tired old cliche, but that is until, until we observe Rumi closely as he reaches for love in his, what my husband elsewhere has called the toolbox of refashioning the self. So he has all these tools in his toolbox of refashioning the self. So that love looks, sounds like a cliche to talk about until you really watch him take this tool out of his toolbox and turn his um, famous old tool into a new kind of completely revolutionary apparatus. This, I suggest, uh, in conclusion to my presentation, um, he achieves by defining love in exclusively this ontological terms. Now, it is not uncommon for Persian, Turkish, and Arabic mystical poetry to avoid a definition for love, thereby portraying it in terms of its infinitude and mystery. You know, it's, it's not something totally new. Hafez, for example, says, See, the love is a sea that has no shores. Or Sadi says, Love has a beginning, but no end. And um, some other mystics like Iraqi actually take it much further into the mythopoetic realm and compare love to Angal. Um, okay, I forgot the poem I wanted to quote. It's not on, it's not on this page. Um, <laughs> um, and so he compares it to Angal, that uh, um, legendary bird we never see. But then he says, as I'm everywhere. In, in the face of every, um, every speck of dust, and therefore um, I'm so apparent that no one can see me. I suggest that for Rumi, beginning, end, sea, shore, birds, legendary or otherwise, are all irrelevant. Love is completely disontological which makes the speaking about it very hard, because even if you use the pronoun it, you immediately imply an object like core there. All love is, for Rumi, is undoing. So I would like to repeat that. All love is, is an undoing. It's flying up high to tear a hundred veils every instant. From his poem. Um, it's the f in the first breath of it, you have to cease to breathe. The first step is refusing to walk. It is a lion 
of God in some of the other poems, um, because it would, he never directly describes it, but it's a lion of God, um, having broken out of its prison. It's a cupbearer who smashes bottles and cups. At other times, love is addressed as a wondrous, light-hearted, yes, and yet very tricky friend, but ultimately love is a falling apart of habitual behavior, a falling away of captivity, a disappearing of barriers, a dispersion of the noise of, that silences the self. It isn't just that these are not easy for a verbal description. I believe that Rumi keeps love unimagined and therefore reimaginable. That is where the power of love lies. Love is not. But the lover, the lovers who walk into fiery storms of love are, and they are so they can be undone. And of them, Rumi speaks, and I'm going to finish this um, presentation with a ghazal, which talks exactly about those lovers. Mara aashiq chanan baayad, ke har baari ke barkhizad, qiyamat haay pur aatash, zahar sui barangizad. Dili khawim chun duzakh, ke duzakh ra furusuzad, dosat darya bishuraunad zamojabah. نگریزد فلک ها را چون مندیلی به دست خیش در پیچد چراغ لایزالی را چون قندیلی در آویزد چون شیری سوی جنگ آید دل او چون نهنگ آید به جز خود هیچ نگذارد و با خود نیز بستیزد چون هفتصد پرده دل را به نور خود بدراند ز عرشش این ندا آید به نامیزد my kind of lover is the kind that rises and in his wake, wake rise fiery doom days every day. Fiery doomsdays everywhere. A hellish heart I want that burns the hell down. That stares 200 seas to mutiny and does not flee the giant waves. A lover that reaches out to the spheres and crumples them in his hands like a handkerchief, then hangs the everlasting lamp in the sky. A lover going to battle like a lion, his heart a monster of the sea. A lover who spares no one, then takes on his own self. When he tears the veils from his own heart with his own light, a voice comes from the throne up high. Nicely done. Nicely done. Thank you.